Hello everybody, I'm Jacob Dettoni, and this is the FDI podcast. FDI magazine was in Cannes a few weeks back to attend MIPIM, one of the world's largest events for property and real estate development, and always a great place to get a gauge of the current sentiment among investors and local authorities. I was there at MIPIM with Courtney Finger, editor-in-chief of FDI magazine, and Sebastian Sheadi, our global markets reporter, who both joined me today in our studio in London. Courtney, you have been covering MIPIM for many years now. So what did catch your attention this year? Yes, well, I'm possibly dating myself, but this was my 14th MIPIM. And I always find that it's an interesting barometer of the economic mood in the moment in Europe, but also in the world. And attendance numbers at MIPIM are also indicative of whether we're in a kind of bull or bear phase. Right. And according to the organizers of the conference, this was the second largest attended uh, conference for MIPM ever with 26,000 people. And apart from the numbers, I did find a feeling of buoyancy, uh, maybe cautious optimism. There's a lot of uncertainty in the world, but people f- uh, seem to be in a fairly optimistic mood, not quite to the levels that we saw in MIPMs of past right before the financial crisis. So the, the MIPMs of 2007, for example, where there was a lot of exuberance in the market. It's not quite at that level, but I'm finding uh, giving, given the backdrop of, of uncertainty and geopolitical turmoil and, and that we're facing in the world that people seemed fairly optimistic and calm. And they are, in a way, they are multiplying efforts to reach out and to convey investors the message that there are opportunities on the ground for investors and for developers. Absolutely. have to be even more proactive right now. Right. Uh, Sebastian, on the other hand, uh, this was your first time uh, at MIPIM. So what, what have been your main uh, takeaways from the event? Similarly, I, I was a little surprised at the optimism. Um, maybe being a little too focused on political events myself, I thought people would be in a, in a more sullen mood. Um, but this was a real estate conference, and real estate did really well last year. And the big boys, such as Cushman and Wakefield and CBRE, came out with reports at the conference um, that indicated, well, not just indicated, that concluded that last year was an incredible year for um, investment into real estate. And FDI markets uh, also, our own data confirmed this. So we we, we saw that um, 2017 saw the highest amount of FDI, Greenfield FDI, into real estate since 2008. That's a huge thing. So I think this is why people are optimistic. Um, uh, and it's it's coming off a global sort of upswing in the economy, um, not just in real estate. One interesting uh, part for me was uh, definitely there the, the was a very strong uh, British uh, representation at the event with local authorities like London and West Midlands, uh, Manchester or Liverpool, all taking the best places, the most visible places around the venue. Um, obviously, it felt like nobody was really mentioning the, the, the Brexit word, uh, <laughs> but definitely everybody was trying to convey a message of uh, openness. Uh, for example, London, the London Pavilion had this uh, slogan, uh, London is open, trying in a way to break through this kind of idea that Brexit is going to isolate uh, the country. So uh, did you guys buy into these messages of openness? Or you think that Brexit still makes a local destination, investment destination around the UK still a bit of a gamble at the moment? Well, I do think it's obviously coming back to the word uncertain again. It's 
it's hard for companies to speculate on what the scenario will be in a few years with regard to access to the European market for financial services, but as well as exports and other sectors. So I do think there's a big question mark hanging over the UK at the moment. But as you say, in, in a time like this, it's when investment promotion agencies really can show their worth and, and earn their keep, as it were. And they do need to push back against the idea that the UK is closing itself off. I mean, there's a whole separate debate over whether that is what the Brexit vote was about sure. and whether that's what the country wants, but it's in general not the best look. So I do think it falls to the municipalities and the investment agencies at the city and regional level to counteract um, the national uncertainties as best they can. I found that it really varied from mayor to mayor, maybe from region to region. So for example, um, the mayor of West of England, Tim Bowles, he, he was quite optimistic. Uh, he said, well, look, it's an opportunity, Brexit is an opportunity. Whereas um, the mayor of, uh, rather the city council leader of Nottingham and Manchester, they they were, they were voiced uh, fears. In fact, Nottingham's uh, city leader called it a national catastrophe. At first, he, he, he vacillated. He didn't want to say it. It was interesting. He said, Nottingham voted in marginally in favour of Brexit. There was an awkward pause. And then he said, personally, I think it's a national catastrophe. Um, and then he, ra- he, he railed on for about two minutes on it. Sir Richard Leese, uh, the, uh, the council leader for Manchester, um, he said, uh, Brexit is a threat. I'm waiting to see any opportunities coming from it. So the very opposite. Um, of of what Tim Bowles, mayor of West of England, said. So I think maybe that reflects a difference, um, a regional sort of uh, difference, as well as just personal ones. People are still very sore about it, um, especially especially at least in the Midlands and the North, if you, if you, if you want to call Manchester And it's, the North. it's also calls for European destinations who are also being more proactive, who think that they can benefit um, sort of the game. UK's losses, potentially their gains. So I've um, been hearing a lot, obviously, while not wanting to stir things up and, and be seen to benefit from the UK's current problems, obviously German locations, Irish, who are arguably always the best investment promoters in the world, um, as well as French locations are really a feeling there's a moment they can capitalize on right now. And Valérie Picresse, who's the, um, the president of the Paris region, she specifically said that the reason FDI into Paris hit a record high in 2017 was in part thanks to Brexit. Um, and as you said, the German mayors were, I think of all of all the mayors we, we I spoke to, the Germans, I went on a speed date, as they called it, with seven <laughs> German mayors. They, they, kept, they all said, look, we're, we're going to take we're going to take the, this opportunity. We know we're going to make the most of this, and we're coming over there to advertise our opportunities to take business from you. Everybody so wants a piece of yeah. their Brexit cake in a way. Absolutely, but they were the most sort of cut and dry about how they they, they were going to take our business. Yeah. Um, and and fair enough. Political uncertainty, well, uh, far beyond the Brexit in a way, and this goes far beyond Brexit. And this was also the feeling that we got from uh, from MIPIM. There were many different countries that are experiencing uh, domestic or like international geopolitical turbulences. Uh, for example, Turkey. Turkey definitely had a very strong presence um, at the at event. And it's always interesting to get the perspective of uh, local authorities rather than national authorities in, in these countries, because as it happens in the UK, they can have like different uh, a different angle of uh, national development. And uh, one very interesting meeting I had was with Mehmet Kalyonsu. He's a board member of Kalyon, who, uh, which is uh, one of the biggest Turkish construction company. 
and he's got a very strong local footprint in a city called uh, Gaziantep, which is at the border with Syria and uh, experienced a huge influx of uh, refugees in the past years. And this is, well, actually 500,000 Syrian refugees kind of crossed the border and uh, sought shelter in, uh, in, uh, in the city, which is a massive amount of, of people for a mid-sized city in Turkey. And this is what he told me. This is the perspective that he, he gave me on the Syrian refugee crisis. The Turkish economy growth so rapidly that local workforce was not enough uh, for our economic growth. So uh, Syrian people came to Turkey. That was a problem for industrial investors uh, to find workers. So uh, it solved the uh, employment uh, problem for us. It has advantages and disadvantages. This is one of the advantages. Of course, economically, Turkey has uh, used 30 billion euro of budget for the Syrian people since the start of the civil war. So economically, it is a burden. But I think the return in long time, it will be good. And another country that always appears to be in a sort of the eye of the storm is uh, Russia. And uh, Inkander was uh, a representation from the, 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 the government of the city of Moscow. And I spoke to Sergei Chermin, the head of economic and international relations of the government of Moscow, about sanctions and how sanctions have affected over the years uh, the local economy and the national economy. And he was also kind of pretty defiant in his answer. This is what he told me. If you look at what sanctions are about, you'll find that on the first stage, uh, it was a little bit of shock. And uh, within a year or two, Everybody get used to this. Nowadays, uh, I cannot say, please come to Moscow and you'll see that uh, the city is not affected at all. Uh, unfortunately, because of sanctions, uh, some Western countries are losing uh, great opportunities to, for international trade and cooperation. And, uh, but even the last year showed that, for example, with Moscow, European Union, the main, let's say, investors and suppliers are Germany, Italy, France. They have the growth of international trade with Russia. In some cases, it's 18%. Uh, with Italy, it's um, nearly 30%. And that shows that uh, business uh, adopted itself and uh, there is a positive appreciation of the potential of not only Moscow, but also Russian Federation. So in both cases, in a way, kind of perceptions on the ground uh, probably are different from perception that we get from, from the outside. Uh, local authorities accept that it's not business as usual, but still they seem to be suggesting that still it's business. Well, I mean, business tends to always find a way to, right. to go on, if, even if it's a little bit costlier, a bit more difficult. So that's the reality. I think we also, there's also the issue, especially on the political side, you, you can't very well come out to a place to promote investment and say that it's all exceptionally difficult and you're suffering and having a bad that's time. Close. So you have to put a bit of a, of a spin on it while, again, at the same time, it is true that investment, trade and business, they do go on one way or the other, even against the difficult backdrop or barrier. And as far as I understand, Sebastian, you also had an interesting uh, uh, encounter uh, with a political uh, analyst in uh, MIPIM, correct? Yes, I spoke to Charles Hacker, who's a senior partner at Control Risk, the leading political consultancy. And here's what he told me. Control Risks doesn't necessarily see any global geopolitical threat 
to the growth cycle at the moment. We think that the most important geopolitical risks right now are regional in nature, and that actually these regional conflicts don't have the potential to disrupt global economic growth. Um, I'll probably very quickly after that add a couple of buts, um, but some of the places that we're you know, focusing on naturally include the Korean Peninsula and um, the Middle East and you know, trade and protectionism and populism, which segues, segues into the sort of butt behind all of this. Um, we don't believe, it's not our view, that a global trade war is looming. Um, that said, um, particularly given some recent decisions coming out of Washington, um, we believe that there is room for isolated sector-specific and country-specific trade disputes that will probably stay on the level of skirmish rather than global trade war, which is a term that you hear bantered around, bandied about quite frequently. Um, and so, you know, the primary threats uh, to foreign investment is this, this increasing atmosphere of protectionism and economic nationalism that is accompanying this wave of populism, particularly um, as, as applies to Europe. In other words, I, I believe he reiterated what Courtney summarized, which is that despite terms like global trade war being bandied about, um, despite a lot of media attention, um, this, won't, this won't turn into a, a global catastrophe. Trade will go on, especially in other sectors. Investment will go on in other sectors. Um, I think the last thing that interested me that was that he um, he said he believes that globalization has reached the limits of its elastic elasticity. I thought that was interesting that he he was very strong on that point. Um, so I don't know what that means for the future, but it's interesting to hear the globe that a leading firm like that said. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. So meaning that he's expecting more protectionists moving forward, or anyway, this kind of liberal push has kind of exhausted come to an end for him? I think that's what, it, what he's implying. Um, but at the same time, he's saying he doesn't... There's no global threat to to economic growth so I'm I'm not it was a bit of a contradiction he implied that things would be getting worse but then he said it wouldn't well actually there are so many things happening also uh, beyond the uh, uh, trade uh, trade and political uncertainties and uh, actually I mean being one of a few other mega trends where 
discussed extensively. For example, urbanization and the trends for megacities has been going on for, for a while now, but also definitely automation and uh, regeneration of urban, urban uh, spaces. And with regard to the, to the format automation, uh, it was interesting what Andy Street, who is the first ever elected mayor of the West Midlands, uh, told me the West Midlands has always been a, a hub for traditional manufacturing uh, in, a, in, a, in the country in the UK for many years. Then they kind of were kind of lagging behind uh, during the times of the services economy in the past uh, 20, 30 years. But now there's CJ comeback with uh, betting big on advanced manufacturing with players like Jawal Land Rover investing big in the area. And this is what he told us. Each job in manufacturing creates much more output than an average job in the economy and that's a complete sea change from where manufacturing was 20-30 years ago. So it's right cutting edge, it is just the type of job that we want, that high value, high tech job. What's going to happen to all the people that haven't got the skills to do those jobs? A, they will develop the skills but B, more importantly, there are lots of other sectors of the economy uh, that sort of are in support of those areas and that's always been the case. In any time in history, there have been the cutting-edge jobs and then there have been the mass jobs. And what's brilliant is manufacturing in the West Midlands is now back at the cutting edge. So, yeah, in a way, it gives us the, the positive perspective on, uh, on automation. And also the West Midlands, they are about to get the high-speed train delivered in a, in a few years. However, I believe that the transition toward advanced manufacturing will be more painful than he believes. Most of all, for these people, they haven't got the skills to adjust to the new level of knowledge and capacity that is required in this advanced uh, manufacturing world. What, what do you guys think of this? Uh, how can this kind of affect local development and uh, investment promotion uh, at the local level? Well, it, it is a, a disruption, as you say, and it's sometimes a painful one, but it all hinges on the skills and and the places that will survive best the shift to automation are those who've been out on front and were already anticipating the kind of skills uh, that companies would need and manufacturers would need. And I think in a lot of probably in more places in the world than not, the skills aren't there yet to match. So you can you can save jobs through automation. They're just different types of jobs and they require different types of skills. In a lot of places in the world, they've not yet been out enough in front of this issue in order to train their workers to be able to have the skills that automation demands. And that's what's going to be necessary in anywhere in the world, whether developed or undeveloped economy, in order to survive and even thrive um, during the age of automation. Seb, you want to have a final line on this? You also had a couple of meetings on automation there, right? So Charles Hecker from Control Risk, he was saying that really we need to be focusing on retraining and re-education. So we need to preempt this trend. Um, and although more jobs are being lost to automation than overseas competitors and multilateral trade agreements, um, despite all the, the, the fears surrounding those things, despite the fact that automation is taking so many jobs, he doesn't think it's a global threat. Um, once again, being rather optimistic, and he's putting the emphasis on training and re-education. Re re well, this is all for now from, uh, from EPIM 2018. Thank you both uh, for being uh, here on the show today. Thanks, everybody, for uh, tuning in. You can find all our podcasts on fdiintelligence.com slash podcast or on ACAST and iTunes. Stay tuned. Thanks. Thank you.